You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Notes on today's Russo-America Summit, Microsoft seizes websites used by the Chinese threat actor Nickel, Google takes technical and legal action against a Russian botnet, Ben Yellen unpacks Australia's aim to uncover online trolls, our guest is Ed Amorosa from Tag Cyber, and the real Satoshi Nakamoto has yet to stand up, just ask a Florida jury. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. First, some quick developing news. The AP reports that Amazon Web Services users are reporting outages in the service. There's no word yet on causes or remediation. The disruption began around noon. We'll be monitoring developments. Now on to the rest of the day's news. The Russo-American Virtual Summit is in progress with the threat of Russian military action against Ukraine, the principal topic under discussion. The principal U.S. leverage appears to be economic as opposed to military. Bloomberg reviews the range of sanctions available. The New York Times is running live updates on the meetings as details become available. The Guardian reports that Latvia's foreign minister Edgars Rinkiewicz has warned NATO to prepare a swift response should Russia invade Ukraine, forward deployment of troops, cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline to Europe, and the stiffest available economic sanctions. Latvia, as another former Soviet republic, is concerned that Russian action against Ukraine would constitute a sharp assertion that the near abroad is firmly within Moscow's sphere of influence, indeed, under Moscow's effective control. The foreign minister sees NATO's credibility as on the line as well. Quote, Russia has to know that if you do something bad in Ukraine, then the NATO and U.S. presence in the eastern flank of the alliance will increase. If you do this, you will provoke a bigger presence than now. These decisions had to be made now through bilateral channels and the alliance. So, if Russia acts, there can be a swift and broad response that does not take months or years. The troop movements NATO is urged to undertake would be forward deployment of combat units, including specifically air defense batteries, not a combat mission into Ukraine itself. It would amount to forward-deployed deterrence analogous to that practiced by the Atlantic Alliance in Germany during the Cold War. Foreign Minister Rinkiewicz 
also urges early and thorough preparation of a range of economic sanctions. Quote, Work is already underway for a tough economic sanctions package, including the disconnection of Russia from the SWIFT banking system, sanctions on the Russian gas pipeline Nord Stream 2, and other economic sanctions. That package needs to be prepared so it can be applied reasonably quickly. We need to be able to target those who are helping Russia to get more revenues. End quote. The U.S. is believed to be thinking along the same lines. While direct U.S. military action in Ukraine is very unlikely, sanctions are to be expected. Bloomberg runs through the U.S. options. Two especially severe strictures are, first, removing Russian access to the SWIFT interbank financial transfer system, and second, blocking Russia's ability to convert rubles into U.S. dollars, euros, or British pounds. The second option is the more likely, since the first would wreak widespread indiscriminate damage to ordinary citizens. Preventing conversion of rubles into other currencies would be more targeted and a more discriminating response. According to The Record, a senior unnamed administration official yesterday said that a Russian offensive might well be a cyber as opposed to a kinetic campaign. And here, too, U.S. economic sanctions are seen as a likely approach to imposing costs. Russian government activity in cyberspace retains, as Mandiant reported yesterday, the high tempo it reached during the SolarWinds compromise. Kremlin toleration and arguably encouragement of ransomware gangs is increasingly an open secret. The New York Times says that extortion payments are passing through Federation Tower East, the tallest building in Moscow and the choicest business address in the city's financial district. Official toleration of cybercrime is expected to come up at today's summit. Microsoft has seized, pursuant to a court order the company obtained, websites operated by the Chinese government threat actor Redmond Calls Nickel and others call Kichang, APT-15, Vixen Panda, Royal APT, and Playful Dragon. Microsoft has been tracking Nickel since 2016. It's known for pursuing targets in both the public and private sectors, but its particular interest in foreign ministries and diplomatic organizations suggests a concentration on foreign policy. Nickel is regarded as a capable and careful organization. Quote, The attacks the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center observed are highly sophisticated and used a variety of techniques but nearly always had one goal— to insert hard-to-detect malware that facilitates intrusion, surveillance, and data theft. Sometimes, Nichols' attacks used compromised third-party virtual private network suppliers or stolen credentials obtained from spear phishing campaigns. In some observed activity, Nickel malware used exploits targeting unpatched on-premises exchange server and SharePoint systems. End quote. Our cybercrime desk has been watching a lot of Three Stooges reruns during the pandemic. Not always, we admit to their profit. And today they tell us, spread out, knuckleheads. Here's why. Google has also been active against criminal infrastructure. In this case, the company took action against Glooptibye, which might be roughly translated from Russian as, You dummy! Mo Howard would have said, Why you? In this case, Mountain View is attempting to provide the IOTA in the form of a technical head slap and a legal nose pull. Glooptibia is a botnet. Google thinks it currently contains about a million compromised Windows devices around the world. 
During growth spurts, Glubtebia's bot herders have shown the ability to bring in thousands of new devices daily. The botnet is used for stealing credentials and other data for crypto-jacking on infected hosts and for establishing proxies that can funnel other people's internet traffic through infected machines and routers. It's a criminal as opposed to an espionage operation. Glubtibia isn't new. Malwarebytes has been tracking it for some time, but Google's disruption is. As Google explains, quote, First, we are coordinating with industry partners to take technical action, and second, we are using our resources to launch litigation, the first lawsuit against a blockchain-enabled botnet, which we think will set a precedent, create legal and liability risks for the botnet operators, and help deter future activity, end quote. The technical seizure of Glutibia's infrastructure will, for now, as Google cautiously observes, prevent the bot masters from using their botnet, but long experience teaches that criminal operations tend to prove resilient in the face of such disruptions, and Google thinks the bad guys will be back. In some respects, Google thinks lawfare might offer the prospects of a longer-term solution. Quote, Our litigation was filed against the operators of the botnet, who we believe are based in Russia. We filed the action in the Southern District of New York for computer fraud and abuse, trademark infringement, and other claims. We also filed a temporary restraining order to bolster our technical disruption effort. If successful, this action will create real legal liability for the operators. And if the operators, or more so those on whose support they depend, run afoul of the courts, there may indeed be some degree of deterrence here. And finally, this just in, yesterday from the Wall Street Journal. Whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is or was, it's not Craig Wright and David Kleiman, at least according to a Florida jury in a civil case. Mr. Kleiman's estate, he himself is deceased, was suing Mr. Wright for a share in a partnership the two men have claimed to have established using the Satoshi Nakamoto pseudonym in order to set up Bitcoin. The jury did not find that the partnership had existed in that form, rejecting nine of the plaintiff's ten claims. They found for the plaintiff on the tenth, converting Bitcoin owned by the partnership to his own use, and so Mr. Wright has been ordered to turn over $100 million in Bitcoin to Mr. Kleiman's estate. But that's a far cry short of the $50 billion, with a B, dollars he might have been found liable for. The other upshot of the case, however, is that Mr. Wright will not be required to produce proof that he's the original owner of coins mined by Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2009. It's worth noting that the claims Mr. Wright advanced in 2016 to be the inventor of Bitcoin have been widely examined and generally found wanting. But in any case, the exclusive and quite possibly mythical Mr. Nakamoto remains very much in the air, free as a bird and elusive as a morning song. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The team at TAG Cyber recently released a quarterly report, this time focusing on the hybrid workplace, largely brought on by the pandemic and what it means for the future of cybersecurity. Ed Amorosa is CEO of TAG Cyber. Cybersecurity experts generally have a, a model in their mind when they think about computing. You have to. You know, the, the power of abstraction in thinking and coming up with ways of, um, of developing protection solutions or any kind of technology is important. And the model we always had was like that perimeter model, right, where you have this blob of computing behind a firewall. And we all knew that that was dissolving to some degree. But I think things came into very clear focus for companies in the 2019 to 2020 timeframe. For example, companies that go to a gigantic fuss about making sure that they very carefully program access from their employees or from uh, consultants to resources that they would be tucking behind some VPN concentration in, in, in their enterprise. We're suddenly having meetings talking about that where their employees were using their home computers over Zoom <laughs> to get on the call. <laughs> and we would laugh because we think it almost was like this um, this very twisted concept of you're, you're doing something convenient and very cloud focused and sort of, you know, from a device and a, you're sitting in a Starbucks and you're talking about designing something that has none of those attributes. And it just became <laughs> so obvious that the, the, this idea that you need to hairpin, you know, through a, a corporate gateway to get to the Internet, that's always been dumb. So that I think it just exposed how silly that was. And another one, for example, I, I do a lot of consulting with our team at Tag Cyber. We have a lot of um, ex-AT&T folks that work with us. 
Well, during the pandemic, we noticed that attitudes toward that shifted considerably. And and I think zero trust came alive. Now, we in cybersecurity have a way of sort of, we get a concept that's interesting and we beat it to death, right? I mean, so, yeah. so it's not like zero trust is wrong. It's just the marketers got a little bit too aggressive with the concept. Now it's become a caricature. But once that settles down, the idea that from a device, you'd hit a network to get to cloud to reach an app, that's 99% of what we all do every day. That is our use case. And whether you're a user doing it to get to an app or you're a supplier dealing with a customer, or you're even a branch office getting to cloud, that cadence is the same. And that's the essence of not only zero trust, but also this idea of secure edge, like having this uh, second generation business network that's no longer MPLS hub and spoke, but rather you know, what uh, some people would refer to this as like sassy, not always so crazy mm-hmm. about the term, because I think most people who say it can't expand the acronym. But the idea is next generation cloud hosted workload access. How do you manage that? And it's kind of magical because I remember in the early days of, of networking when it was shown to me, I think it was Cisco showing me when I was at AT&T, the idea of separating data and control planes. I know that shows you how old I am. We take that for granted. But that was such a great idea. I mean, when you're managing networks, that idea was like, I thought, what a really capable team that would think that up. And it was the whole network industry. Well, once you've separated those two, the next insight was take all the control And instead of worrying about thousands of routers or endpoints or hundreds of branch offices, put it in the cloud. And now you can control the network from the cloud. And and as that came into focus the last few years, nothing has made me happier. And and that Mm -hmm. is the essence of work from anywhere. That's what work from anywhere means. It means that we, we can extend, we can scale, we can manage in a way that allows us to build networks that can look like any shape you like instead of the old MPLS hub and spoke, which really was quite limited. You can't draw hub and spoke networks in a, in a way that scales. Anybody who's ever looked at a GUI that uses hub and spoke knows what I'm talking about because the screen very quickly gets unmanageable, right? You got all those lines coming out of a big dot and you go, oh, uh, what, what good is that? So it's been an era the last few years where... Hybrid work has allowed us to do better jobs as computer scientists, as network engineers, and definitely as cybersecurity experts. So we focus a lot about that on the, uh, uh, in, in the quarterly. That's a big topic we cover. That's Ed Amorosa from TAG Cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Interesting article uh, from uh, ZDNet. This is written by Campbell Kwan, and it's titled, Social Media Platforms Need Complaints Schemes to Avoid Defamation Under Aussie Anti-Troll Bill. Uh, The folks in Australia are uh, proposing a bill here that could clamp down on some social media companies. What is going on here, Ben? 
This is the type of bill that would never stand a chance in the United States just due to our political culture and our respect for civil liberties. But nevertheless, it's always interesting to see what what happens in other countries. So this is a proposed bill. Uh, It hasn't been enacted yet. It's called the Social Media Anti-Trolling Bill of 2021. Tech companies in Australia would be classified as publishers of any comments posted on a social media platform. This would apply to any platform that has more than 250,000 users in Australia. Okay. Uh, under this law, if somebody reasonably believes that they have been the victim of defamation or trolling, then the social media companies would be compelled to share identifying information about the supposed troll. So hmm. username, address, phone number, uh, et cetera. I- IP address, I suppose. Exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that would allow Australian law enforcement to undertake an investigation. Hmm. There is uh, sort of a safe harbor provision uh, to protect people's identity if the platforms reasonably believe that the complaint doesn't actually relate to defamation. Mm. If it's something that's frivolous, then the companies wouldn't be required to provide this information to the person complaining. I understand the impulse for this law. Trolling is certainly bad. Uh, We don't want to see people harassed on the internet. Right. Um, But I always worry about a slippery slope with these types of things. If we allow the government to compel these social media companies to turn over personal information in these circumstances, then you have a mechanism in place where it can be employed for political purposes, to target disfavored groups, identify people who you know, might have a a good reason about posting certain types of content on social media platforms that isn't defamatory. So I think this is an interesting idea by the Australian parliament. But like I said, I I just don't think this is something that would be seriously considered in the United States. So is this a matter of that there are compelling cases for for anonymity online that that, – that benefits us all? Yeah, I mean, we've had a debate over the years about whether there's a right to be anonymous online, and there are costs and benefits um, to the rights of anonymity. Obviously, the benefits are, you know, we can foster a better marketplace of ideas. People aren't going to be willing to say what they think and feel and, you know, start the sort of broader political, religious, et cetera, discussion on online platforms. So that's the positive side. The negative side is, People control other people without there being any consequences. So you have to kind of weigh those values. I think in the United States, just based on our political culture, generally most people would weigh on the side of let's keep this marketplace of ideas open. You know, if somebody's threatening violence against themselves or somebody else, maybe that's a rare opportunity where social media companies should have to identify that user. Mm. Um, But when we're talking just about mean words, about trolling, even if it is defamatory, um, it shouldn't rise to the level where we're de-anonymizing individuals. Again, that's my personal view, um, but I think it's something that would be widely shared uh, here in the United States. Again, you know, I I think every country is different. If you have a culture that prizes the protection of people online, online safety, the protection from trolling, then I can understand why this would be a compelling proposal. I'm curious if Australia were to put something like this in place, how does that affect the global marketplace of of your Facebooks of the world, you know, that are global platforms? How do you manage when people are exchanging things across international borders and you have one nation, Australia in this case, a democracy, who has this set of rules that might not align with others? 
So, you know, it would apply to, to companies like Facebook because it's any company that has more than 250,000 users in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that's true for every single big tech or, or, uh, organization, big tech company. They definitely could meet that threshold of users. Right. So you'd have to have a compliance team uh, as it relates to this Australian law to make sure that you're able to respond to these types of requests. Hmm. Now, you're only able to get information on subjects over which Australia has jurisdiction. So... Um, people who are actually in Australia or under the legal jurisdiction of Australia. Right. You know, that means we could see, uh, you know, people trying to play tricks, um, you know, maybe using VPNs and trying to conceal the fact that they're Australian or conceal the fact that they are in Australia. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you can uh, get yourself outside of Australian jurisdiction by doing something like that, and then you wouldn't be subject to penalty under the law. You know, I don't know enough about the broader uh, tech statute provisions uh, in Australia, whether, you know, there are laws against concealing yourself in that way. Um, But it certainly, I think, seems right for people to try and get around these requirements. It reminds me of an old uh, social media hack, and I don't know if it's like a social media life hack. And I Mm -hmm. don't know the degree to which this is true, but I remember hearing several times years ago that – if you wanted to get rid of the Nazis on your Twitter feed, tell Twitter that you're located in Germany. Right, exactly, and where their Nazis are banned. Right. Exactly. And so they go away. And so evidently they're capable of filtering them. <laughs> it's just you have to – they have to be compelled to do so. Right, So it's right. interesting. And this, you know, I don't think this would be that much of a burden on Facebook because – or, you know, similar tech companies because yeah. I think there are provisions to – to varying degrees like this in, in other countries. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure in Western democracies it's ever gone this far, but it's not something that they're necessarily, that they're not going to be capable of, of adhering to. Yeah. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see it uh, follow through, see if it actually becomes a law there, and if so, how that might affect uh, the rest of the social media world. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.